In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you to the All Souls Sermon Podcast. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. In our gospel passage, Jesus leads his disciples to the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, which is about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. This is not an incidental detail. As we find time and again, Jesus' actions are intentional and full of meaning. Even his geographical movements are meant to convey a message. Jesus chose the region of Caesarea Philippi because it provided a compelling backdrop for the questions he asks his disciples. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Caesarea Philippi was soaked in the religions of the ancient Near East. The atmosphere was saturated with eons of pagan worship. The area was littered with ancient temples to the fertility god Baal, whose worship always posed a spiritual temptation for ancient Israelites. It wasn't only Baal that was worshipped in this region, but also the ancient Greek nature god Pan. There's a high hill nearby with a deep, seemingly bottomless cavern inside, which pagans claimed was the birthplace of this ancient nature deity. The Romans also left their spiritual mark on the region. Just before the birth of Christ, Herod the Great chose this location to build a great white marble temple in honor of Caesar, who was worshipped as divine. One writer observes that no one could look at Caesarea Philippi, even from a distance, without seeing that pile of glistening marble. With the religions of the ancient world on full display in their glistening splendor, Jesus boldly asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? We can almost imagine the surrounding temples quaking as Peter confesses Jesus as the Son of God. The first question Jesus asks his disciples is, who do men say that I am? The disciples, we read, respond together and offer the speculations of their countrymen. They report that some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. These speculations are in no way dismissive. They are incredibly lofty and full of admiration for Jesus. The Jews of Jesus' day wouldn't casually throw around such names. Elijah and Jeremiah were considered among the greatest of Israel's prophets, the princes of the prophetic line. Jews lived in earnest expectation of Elijah's return, who they believed would herald in the Messianic age. These are the heavy hitters of Israel's past, 
which means there was a large contingent of Jews taking Jesus' ministry very seriously. The high estimation of Jesus among his countrymen isn't wholly different from the way the modern secular West regards Jesus. If we asked a random person walking down the street in one of our American cities who Jesus was, they, may, they might say something like, Jesus was an amazing person, ahead of his time, a pioneer of love, someone to be admired and imitated. If asked whether he was the divine son of God, they would likely balk and say, he was a great human being, but not God. There is no lack of admiration for Jesus, both in ancient times and now. But Jesus isn't after our admiration, and he refuses to be categorized as a great man among great men. He is something completely different. Jesus does not glory in this comparison. He does not bask for a moment in the disciples' response to his first question, but immediately moves on to the more important question, who do you say that I am? Who do you who have been with me day in and day out say that I am? The time of speculation is over. And the disciples are confronted with a profoundly personal decision that couldn't be sidestepped. Who is the one standing right in front of them? St. Peter wastes no time thinking over the question. He immediately exclaims the correct answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus does not flinch at Peter's inspired confession, but completely affirms his divine sonship. Peter's confession occurs in front of his fellow disciples, which we can understand as the gathered church. It's important for us, the church, to periodically confront this basic precept of the faith and remind ourselves that everything else rests on these words. Peter's confession is the foundation stone for the Christian faith and the great truth on which the church is founded forever, the cornerstone that the powers of hell cannot shake loose. The great truth of Jesus' divine sonship is the touchstone for everything else we believe in. All that we confess must cohere and resonate with this primary truth. Peter's confession is the pulsing heart of the church. The whole edifice of the church is built on these ten words and cannot be supported by anything else. The belief that Jesus was Merely a loving man who did nice things certainly can't shoulder this weight. As Christians, we must make these very words the cornerstone of our individual lives. Jesus confronts us with the same timeless question he asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? If you're anything like me, 
you prefer to remain at the level of speculation. I would much prefer to theorize with the disciples about Jesus' identity than to answer this question directly and personally. On the surface, at least, it seems much easier to remain in the realm of possibility. Because the moment we confess Jesus as the Son of the living God, the implications flood in. We realize that we can't go on living life as before. Our orientation must fundamentally change. We must turn our inner eye away from ourselves and fasten it on the Son of the living God and live as he lived. Peter confessed the Christ with the world's religions arrayed before him. He exclaimed Jesus as the divine Son in the shadows of the alluring temples of Caesarea Philippi. We, too, have an array of options set before us. We, too, have a choice. And our current pantheon of gods is no less alluring. We share the ancients' ingenuity when it comes to creating gods to worship. Although we don't call them gods, their power over our lives is no less significant. We worship beauty, sexual lure, and the perfect body. We worship money and influence. We worship intelligence and power, and even our own identities. And the scary thing about our gods is that we worship them unconsciously. We don't even know we're kneeling in their temple. I recently watched a few episodes of a Netflix documentary that focused on the billion-dollar health and wellness industry. It doesn't take long before you realize that physical health and the relentless pursuit of a pure physical existence is a god many worship. The documentary features people living in a constant state of poisonous worship as they desperately seek out the next thing to enhance their well-being and postpone their inevitable death. As the novelist David Foster Wallace famously observed, everybody worships. Everybody puts something on a pedestal and bows down. Worship is our human default setting. And I would add that everybody worships all the time. We are always serving something. We are always in a state of worship, whether we realize it or not. As Christians, we recognize that Christ is the only one worthy of worship, the only one who can rightfully occupy the pedestal. This following week, let us focus our attention to how and where and what we worship. Has one of the alluring gods of this age usurped the spot that should only be occupied by the sun? A good way to discern whether this has happened is to look at how we spend our time, what fills our hearts and minds as we go about our days. Do we fret away our days worrying about our looks, our health, or our status? 
Do we constantly think about our performance or our intelligence? The only way to displace these powerful gods is by placing the true God at the center of our lives and confessing with St. Peter, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of All Souls Episcopal Church. For service times and more information, go to allsoulsokc.com. God be with you.